All right. Hi, everyone. This is Anthony Diaz with the Pop Health Show. And this show is for anyone that has a strong passion for making people healthier in this world. I am really excited today uh, for my guest. My, my guest that's on the show today is Amit Isola. Amit is with Wangjong Healthcare Investments. What's really interesting, he's done a lot of uh, great things in healthcare. He's voting with his dollars, involved in some in, in investing and nurturing and supporting some really interesting healthcare phenomenon that's solving some interesting problems. And uh, I'm not going to steal his thunder, but Amit, welcome to the show and thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks for making time. Uh, I'm, I'm always very intrigued and fascinated by people's stories. Uh, take us back or teleport us back. Tell us about the series of events that have led you to become the person you are today. I would just love to hear your origin story. Sure. Um, so, yeah, go going into college, uh, yeah, I was thinking about going to healthcare, and obviously a lot of college students coming in your freshman year, you were thinking about going pre-med, uh, but I quickly kind of moved away from that because I realized I had a lot of other interests beyond just going to uh, you know medical school and, and becoming a practicing physician. So I actually went to or applied to the engineering college at the University of Michigan, and I ended up um, transferring into the industrial and operations engineering program there, which is kind of the, the liberal arts of engineering. It, it gave me the opportunity to dabble in a lot of different uh, areas within engineering, um, and then what I did is I actually transferred into, into a dual degree program where I could get my master's in biomedical engineering, uh, which was an emerging field at the time, or at least an emerging program at the University of Michigan. Um, but it was one that kind of allowed me to really start following my, my passion in healthcare. And um, having gone through the program, what I realized was, you know, I don't, I don't really want to be a biomedical engineer full time. It was um, it probably wasn't quite as diverse in, t in terms of my day to day experience as I'd like. So uh, I decided instead to, to go into consulting, which is what a lot of engineers did back back in those days. Um, you know, the main consulting firms, large consulting firms were just hiring a lot of different engineers from uh, you know, a lot of different specialties. And uh, so I actually accepted an offer with Deloitte Consulting. Uh, to join their healthcare practice. And I was there for a little while, for about a year or so. And then I actually decided to move to New York and to join a small health IT startup called Plan Data Management, which uh, was a software company that basically provided claims and financial reconciliation solutions uh, for providers as it related to Medicare and Medicaid claims. So effectively what they were doing is just ensuring that providers were getting paid uh, appropriately for, um, you know, for the Medicare and Medicaid claims by CMS. And so I was, I think, employee number 22 of that company. And it was just a very interesting time uh, to be at a startup because uh, the HIPAA regulations had just come in. Um, you know, a lot of different government regs were, were being implemented as it related to electronic data capture, transferring of, of claims and, and you know, financial reconciliations electronically. So um, this was in the early 2000s, and uh, I wore multiple hats there. I was I came in as a technical support advisor, uh, then moved on to become more of a, a customer relationship person. And mm -hmm. by the end, I was actually working with the developers uh, on occasion to actually help respec products based on customer feedback. So, oh, wow. as with any as with any small startup, you're wearing multiple hats, and it was uh, an absolutely fantastic experience. I, I really got. Um, a great 
uh, perspective of what it's like to actually work on the startup side of things. Mm. What I decided, though, after about four years there was to kind of round out my skill set and go back to business school since I'd never really taken any uh, finance or accounting or business oriented classes in, in the past. And so I uh, went to business school, uh, then spent the next 10 years in investment banking. Uh, initially, I was a generalist, but then decided to, to come back to my healthcare roots. And um, the last six years of my, my time in investment banking were spent at a small boutique firm in Chicago called Healthcare Growth Partners, where we basically worked um, with small, uh, you know, small to mid-sized companies in the sub-middle market space. Uh, advising them on M&A transactions and capital raises. And uh, mm -hmm. our focus was purely on digital health. Uh, and it was, once again, just a great experience because there were so many small digital health transactions that took place during that period of, you know, 20, I would say 2011 to 2016 or 2010 to 2016. Um, many of them didn't make the headlines. I mean, you wouldn't see the these on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, but they were just so many of them that it actually gave me an excellent feel for where the digital health market is headed. It uh, gave me an opportunity to work with, uh, you know, directly with CEOs and CFOs, you know, given the fact that we were a small firm and uh, a lot of our clients were also on the smaller side. Um, so once again, it was just a great hands-on investment banking experience and served as a really nice platform for me to move over to the investment side, which is something that, that I'd always wanted to do. And uh, in late 2016, I... Uh, moved on from Healthcare Growth Partners, and uh, I joined the team here at Wanjiang America. And um, really what I've done since then is to build out their healthcare portfolio. So mm -hmm. Wanjiang America, for, for those of you who don't know who we are, we are actually a Chinese company where the core business is on the automotive side. So automotive components is, uh, is really the core business and in China as well as here in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, but as with many large uh, Asian conglomerates, we've been building out investment uh, vehicles in areas outside of the core business. So we have uh, a very successful real estate group. Um, we have, uh, we're looking to do investments in oil and gas, mining, um, a variety of other sectors. And about you know, three years ago, the team decided, hey, we should probably build out a, a healthcare investment vertical. And I was brought on board to help manage that process. And uh, in the two and a half years I've been here, we've made 14 investments in digital health, which is really my focus, and that's really where my comfort level lies mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to healthcare. And uh, yeah, but we've gotten up to uh, you know very very good start. And we, we typically come in in the Series A round, and since we're balance sheet investors, we can come back in in subsequent rounds as well. I love it. I love it. Well, so first of all, I mean, thank you for sharing you know your foundation, you know what your focus and passion is, like you know previously and you know, the education and series of companies that you went through to kind of get to where you're at today, which is really interesting. It's probably going to be very fascinating and very fulfilling to be able to um, look at these new healthcare solutions and opportunities that have, you know, local and U.S. value to them, but probably uh, value in China as well and globally for, for that matter. Um, I guess, you know, I guess with that, I don't want to make an assumption. I'd love to hear a little bit more about you know, are there, you know, with the healthcare investments that you're doing and you, those spaces that you're looking at, you know, what spaces excite you and do they have like a, a U.S. element to them and a China element or a global perspective? Do they need to have those three criteria? Um, so just curious on those dimensions, but also just more importantly, interested in kind of what has your passion these days uh, in healthcare. 
Sure. Yeah. So uh, there really isn't a geographic focus uh, with our with our group. I, I would say mm-hmm. uh, we are heavily focused on the U.S. We made one investment in an Israeli company, which was one of the very first investments I made when when I got over here. Uh, and that company has actually since moved to the U.S. So currently, all of our 14 investments are in the United States. Um, not to say that we won't go outside of the U.S., but you know, we're, we're based out of here, and we, for the most part, we operate like a U.S. investor. Um, and so, just looking at some of the areas where that I'm really spending a lot of my time these days, obviously, that there are a lot of exciting developments in digital health, and I'll I'll focus most of this conversation on digital health, despite right. the fact that we have a couple of device deals, because as I mentioned, that's really where my background lies and that's Mm -hmm. really where I'm most comfortable. Um, But if you look at a lot of the exciting developments in digital health, obviously you have the the emergence of care management solutions and digital therapeutics. You have AI and ML enabling workflow automation with a variety of several use cases, uh, with a variety of use cases that have already actually played out pretty well. Um, We have the ongoing decentralization of care to lower cost settings, including via telehealth. Uh, mm-hmm. And obviously we have the precision, the precision medicine um, initiative, which is driven in, in some part by, by the increasing at, uh, access to genetic data. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I look at all of those, I would still say that uh, my focus is probably more on the infrastructural technologies that actually support the technologies I've just discussed. Mm-hmm. With you. Um, if you look at, the biggest challenge in healthcare right now, it still remains the fact that all of our data is for the most part siloed. And I would say with the advent of uh, more and more data coming into the ecosystem, you have wearable data, you have data now coming in from life sciences, um, you have clinical trial data. Um, you have the issue of siloed data still continues to, to be a big challenge facing uh, all companies that are in the digital health space. Right. And so the, the technologies that I'm still the most excited about. While they're probably less sexy than a lot of the other technologies that I've just discussed, are the infrastructural technologies that actually serve as, um, you know, data highways between all the various stakeholders in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the kind of the analogy I like to use is everyone's out there right now trying to build Ferraris, but we haven't really finished building the roads yet. Yeah, and true. and that's and you know, and I've listened to some of your previous podcast i think this has been touched upon on on multiple occasions and uh so i feel like investing in the companies that actually have established uh, data connectivity with large footprints um connecting various stakeholders within the ecosystem uh is a great place to start And, and once you've built that footprint and once you've built those data highways you can then start layering on additional capabilities and and these Technologies, while uh, once again they're sometimes I think overlooked in healthcare, they they truly serve as the the foundation upon which we can build the next generation of healthcare technology. I think they're hugely important, and I still think there's a place for that in any investment portfolio, and that's still an area that I'm looking to focus on. You know, even today, mm-hmm. so I can throw out even a few names of our in our portfolio that kind of uh, exemplify that. I mean, we have a company like Caradox which uh, basically provides EMRs and uh, EMRs for public schools, but then they're also layering on um, health-oriented services such as vaccinations and uh, wellness visits. Mm -hmm. Um, You have a company like Higgy, which offers up those uh, health kiosks that you see 
at supermarkets and pharmacies. Um, and once again, you can, it's just another means by which uh, providers and payers can actually reach the patient outside the, the walls of the hospital. Um, you have a company like doctor.com, which is offering up a unified platform for providers to manage their online presence. Um, once again, it's the connectivity piece. It's a, it's a means by which you can reach the provider and then over time offer up additional value-adding services. And then on the insure tech side, we have a company called Limelight Health, which offers up connectivity between payers, brokers, and employers during the benefits procurement process. And mm-hmm. so um, I'm very much into focusing in on connectivity because I feel like that's still probably the biggest challenge that, yeah. uh, that we face as an industry. Yeah. No, Ahmed, this is great. I really appreciate it. Well, definitely, I appreciate your, your, your portfolio companies. Um, a couple months ago, I had Jeff Higgy on, on the show. I, I'm a big fan of, you know, how they're, you know, they're consumerizing. It's almost like consumerizing like biometrics, right? And then some of these other right. you guys have done are, are really key infrastructure pieces. And there's nothing better of a network effect than establishing like that connectivity, right? That's like the first fundamental, um, you know, rule of network effects. Um, I guess what I'm kind of curious about is, you know, you've got these new categories coming out on some of the investments that you've done. You've got the, the biggest category, which is the EHR category. You have now this other category of like tele- telemedicine companies and all the other like sub markets that, that equate to the full like total addressable market of population health. What, what other categories do you see infrastructure connectivity wise that are intriguing you, whether you've made a bet in that space or not? Um, is it um, you know patient engagement platforms? Is it genomics platforms? Is there such a thing as as both of those? Or you know, do they latch on to EHRs? And I'm also kind of curious on how you view the EHRs if you see that category shifting and changing or becoming even more dominant. Um, just kind of curious on how you see uh, connectivity categories today versus tomorrow. Yeah, no, it's a really good question, and I think uh, I'll start off with your with your last question first, mm-hmm. which is kind of mm-hmm. the, the the role of the EMR. So, uh, obviously, it's it's been very well documented that EMRs, while they serve as a very useful data repository, obviously they they pose a lot of challenges for the physician when it comes to workflow, uh, and then interoperability between the EHRs and other silos of data still is proving to be challenging today. So, I think. Um, I mean, my prediction is that we'll see an evolution of, of EHRs over time where they start capturing uh, information more for the purposes of actual population health and care management as opposed to just billing, which is kind of what they, you know, what the genesis of EHRs were. Right. Um, and so, you know, we'll start seeing, you know, the, the EHRs are actually serve as a very, very helpful and useful first layer of infrastructure. And then we're going to start seeing additional uh, capabilities get layered onto the EHRs. You're already seeing that in the form of population health and care management modules that you're seeing from all the various EHR vendors. But I think we're just going to keep building on these EHR capabilities over time. And if you look at some of the other silos of data, um, it, there's there's so much that can be integrated into the EHR, or at least even if not fully integrated real time into the EHR, at least forming some kind of connectivity to the EHR to the extent that you could actually start getting a more holistic picture of the patient uh, and hopefully improving outcomes. And we have uh, clinical trial data that um, mm-hmm. I think would be very useful if it was integrated with uh, actually ongoing 
uh, EHR data. So this way you can track the efficacy of products that have already been lost uh, and released, you know, supposed FDA products. Um, you have uh, wearable data that, um, while today, frankly, represents uh, a fair amount of noise where it doesn't necessarily pass a so what test. I mean, I have a Fitbit and uh, it's, it's good to have the information, but, um, you know, there's still the question still remains, you know, is does it provide you with some form of actionable guidance? And right. I think if you can integrate um, the wearable data that's collected outside of the hospital, which is most of our life, if you think about it, I mean, the, the vast majority of our time uh, in our life, we're actually um, uh, moving around and where you can collect passive data on a patient um, and then integrate that with it with an EHR that can actually en enrich any of the data that's captured on the clinical side of things. Right. Um, and so I would say, yeah, I mean, there, there are definitely some categories um, that you know, aren't necessarily, uh, you know, being fully captured right now, whether it's on the life sciences side, whether it's on the, you know, the, the patient connectivity side as it relates to wearables. Um, yeah, I would say, uh, another area, which uh, I was actually going to get into this a little bit later on, but just mm -hmm. there's other lifestyle and wellness data that you can capture that isn't being captured today. And, you know, one of them is diet, right? Uh -huh. So, um, you know, how, how do you capture what a patient is eating um, and how much of it that they're actually eating because to me uh, I, I would say and this isn't based on any scientific study but this is just my own kind of anecdotal guess um, is you know food probably represents 80 percent of your health and you can work out a lot but if you don't eat well it's just not gonna you're not going to see any results so you know imagine the impact on, on people with chronic disease or people who are actually about to be diagnosed with chronic disease. Um, and so I, I think there are a lot of different areas in, uh, in healthcare where we can start capturing data that's never been captured historically. Um, but that's a really big challenge. It's not easy to do, to be able to aggregate the data, uh, integrate it in such a way into the EMR or other, you know, uh, centers of data. Right. Um, in a way that's actually meaningful and actionable. I mean, ultimately, as an investor, everything that I look at it has to pass a so what test, you know, it, right. it, is this something that either a provider or a patient would use and how will it enrich their existence uh, and how will it make a provider's life easier and how will it improve outcomes on the patient side? Right. Right. Yeah. Ahmed, this is, it's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. You, I mean, we, it's funny. I was just talking to a local investor here earlier today. <clears throat> you were talking about like this omniverse of, of, of health data and flow and infrastructure and the why is more important. So the what and the how is kind of becoming capable. I'm sure you see the trends of like Apple Health and now that data, the Apple Health data is becoming more consumerized and now it's going to you know, hold records for more and more patients starting with like, I think the, um, the VA records and, and things like that. There's the Fitbit data and then there's now there's like, yeah, systems like Bolitic that allow that data to be connected to the EHR. But the big thing is like right. the why, right? And then there's nutrition data, there's genomic data. And furthermore, there's this other like dimension to the, the omniverse, right? I, I call it omniverse, right? Of the healthcare payment side, right? The insurance side. And then what are right. the incentives aligned of pulling the, the reasons why this data should all, you know, converge? I guess, do you have a viewpoint on, on, on if you see that the worlds are colliding with the providers, payers, and consumer data, or do you see it colliding in a, in a very favorable way? Do you think the demands and the incentives are there 
for all the sides to start playing and moving this data around, assuming, assuming, I mean, basic assumption, it could be done regulatory wise, it could be done securely, it could be done with consent. So assuming those premises are in place, do you have a, a viewpoint on how these worlds come together? And if there's any other things that need to happen, if it's legislative, um, we might be solving the problem of the, the healthcare universe if you if you answer that. But <laughs> um, I'm just kind of <laughs> curious on how you how you think of it. You know? Yeah, no, and I, I do think incentives are aligning, but I think right. it's going to be very very difficult for the incentives to be perfectly aligned. Uh, right. To be honest, because you know historically the fee for service uh, model has benefited providers, um, and you, you move more, more over to a kind of a value based type environment, um, you know, obviously the, the group that's going to benefit more disproportionately are going to be the payers and, and hopefully the patients. Um, but obviously we need to find some way to be able to account for, you know, potential revenue loss on the provider side. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I do mm-hmm. think that while incentives are aligning more and more these days, I, I'm not totally sure that they'll always be perfect that they'll come a time in the future where they'll be completely perfectly aligned uh, i think it's always going to be a, a balancing act and a juggling act uh, to make sure that obviously providers are well taken care of and they're incented to continue to provide good service uh, to their patients uh, and at the same time while keeping uh, costs down for patients and for the payers and so um I'm mm-hmm. kind of in the wait and see mode for that one. Uh, I'm too. not totally sure what that's <laughs> going to look like in the future. I'm going right. to, uh, you know, I, right. I, I, th- I think we're headed in the right direction. But to be honest, Anthony, I think this is going to take a really long time for us to figure it this is. out. It is. And, 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 I, and I don't think whatever solution we land on is going to be the perfect one anyway. Uh, right. I, I think that would be, you know, probably a little overly optimistic to think that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny, though, as I get a little bit older, I, I realize this striking a balance between urgency, um, waste, you know, seeing a phenomenon happen, you see waste happening, but also, you know, patience, you know, it, it, I mean, it was, I mean, the, the smartphone's only been around for about a decade right now, and it seems so much longer, but man, look how much society's changed in just 10 years. Like, you know, I, I think it's, it's hopefully with a lot of these pieces in place that, you know, you will see some major changes within the next 10 years which I think are very underestimated, right? People have over uh, high expectations for what can occur in like three years, right? But uh, for sure, I know I right. do sometimes, but um, you start to realize that, you know, with the right pieces in place, um, you know, it, it might be okay if it takes a little bit longer as long as it's done right and the right, you know, incentives and parties are aligned. But um, I mean, I guess along those lines, I'm just curious on how you see you know, tell me a little bit more about the vision of health in the future, the vision of health, the vision of your vision of healthcare in the future. Um, what's what's the optimistic future you see coming together and you see happening? And maybe it's some non-obvious things that, that you see coming to fruition. Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, for me, and I think this goes along the lines of some of what we've talked about in mm-hmm. some of our previous conversations, Anthony, it's uh, the healthcare system has always been focused on treating patients who are sick. Right. And uh, to me, the, the real holy grail is preventive care. Right. Um, and so preventive care and early detection and diagnosis of, of disease or uh, you know, any type of physical ailment to the extent that you can actually delay that decline or delay that disease in such a way that it can improve outcomes and, mm-hmm. and lower costs. And so um, you know, there are a couple of areas that I, I think 
uh, underneath that, uh, you know, kind of underneath that general focus that um, I'm really interested in, uh, I would say, number one, digital biomarkers. And mm-hmm. so if you look at, we actually made a, a well, our most recent investment was a company in a company called Savonix. Uh, and what they do is they offer early detection of cognitive decline. Um, and it's a digital platform where you basically you know, take tests and, and puzzles uh, on your smartphone. And um, taking that a step further, you know, if you can start leveraging existing wearable and sensor data to begin predicting or or even uh, detecting an early the early onset of physical decline or disease, I think that could meaningfully change the way that we all consume healthcare in the future. So, uh, a lot of interesting companies right now that are on the forefront of that. I mean, you you have companies that are using uh, voice characteristics, uh, facial characteristics, so basically facial scans and, and, and uh, detection of changes in facial characteristics over time. You have biomechanical characteristics like gait. Um, you have vitals, yeah, so just traditional vitals data that's tracked by mm-hmm. sensors that are readily available today. And if you can combine some or all of the above to develop mathematical models and then correlate these digital biomarkers with with uh disease or with or with some form of physical decline then the hope is then that you can actually get in front of that decline or get in front of that disease and so to me that's that's extremely interesting and, and if you then start layering on to other other areas that are probably more holistic such as air quality and water quality analytics uh other social determinants of healthcare then what you can really do is you can start painting a holistic picture of a patient where you can say, well, here are all the inputs uh, that this patient is is facing, whether it's environmental, whether it's diet, um, whether it's um, you know other kind of physical characteristics that you can track over time. And if you can then start aligning them with treatments and then outcomes, I think at that point you are really going to uh, create a, a true longitudinal record of that patient, uh, right. something that obviously doesn't really exist today. Uh, but obviously it doesn't exist today because it's really hard to do. I mean, can you aggregate all this data uh, and create models that actually generate predictive correlations right. between these inputs and, and the outputs? And um, and of course, can you do it in a way that's you know, where the informational is, is gatherable and is can actually provide real insights? And so mm-hmm. um, I think it's still early days as it relates to digital biomarkers, but it's definitely an area that I'll be closely tracking over the next few years. I love it. I love it. And, and, and the longitudinal side of that data stream, obviously, you know, there's new technologies. I mean, hype cycle term aside, but blockchain that can probably enable, you know, that longitudinalness. But what I wonder if that's even worth, but um, I'm wondering on um, it if even, you know, where does that, like that, that record, like what entity owns, not owns that, but facilitates that? Is that going to come from the EMR companies? Is that going to come from the Apples, the Googles, the Amazons? It's hard to see, right? It's hard to tell where it's going to come from. It does feel like what, whatever it shapes up to be needs to be very consumer friendly. So for the consenting, for the traveling around of it. But all this data, if it can get unlocked, the question is, you know, what's the, what to your, to come full circle, what's the, um, what's the connectivity and who is the steward of that connectivity, right? I, I guess it, that's, I don't know if that's even a question, I'm just thinking out loud here. <laughs> no, no, it, it's, it's a great point because that's where the concerns lie, right? So right. if you're a patient, do you trust providers or especially payers? Do you trust them with your data? Right. Um, 
you know, and it's a very good question because do you, one of the main concerns that any patient should have is, well, hey, look, I can give them all this, um, you know, sensor data um, that I'm collecting outside of hospitals, outside of a clinical setting. But will that be used against me when it comes yeah. time to actually, you know, design a policy for me and when it comes time for me to actually figure out what my premium is? Um, and so I think the solutions that are going to be the most successful in the space are the ones where the patient is going to own this data. Yes. Uh, and I think I, you know, and I, I'm not talking about EMR data necessarily because wow. I feel like, you know, that still, I think that remains to be seen about what's the, what's the most, who is the most effective owner of that data? And, you know, is it a good idea for the patients to actually have access to a lot of data that they don't necessarily know how to interpret? Uh, you know, how do you give them the guidance for that data? And also how secure is all of the, you know, is all of this data anyway? So I think there's still a lot of question marks that need to be answered as it relates to EMR data, but as it relates to data that comes outside of clinical settings, you know, which is, right. I would say sensor-based data, food data, um, you know, data as it relates to kind of social determinants of health. The, the question there is, you know, who, who should own that? And I feel like in that case, the answer is probably more, I think the alignment would be better if the patient owned the data because in this way they could opt in uh, when it comes to actually sharing that data with other stakeholders in the healthcare space. And I think there's going yeah. to be this underlying pressure between uh, patients and payers because ultimately the payers need to underwrite the patients and they're going to want to get as much data as possible and the patients are going to be wary of sharing that data. So that, you know, once again, there's not going to be a perfect answer there, but, you know, there needs to be some kind of a happy uh, you know, happy medium struck, right? right. Uh, in, in order for anything to actually occur. Um, insurance companies, I know, having talked to a few people in that space, in the insure tech space, um, you know, there, there's definitely a big push now to, to gather IoT type data um, in the marketplace. Uh, and in the case of healthcare, obviously directly from the patients to better underwrite the population and to better predict claims loss. Mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, and that's going to be, I think, something that's going to, we're going to hear a lot more about in the next few years. Um, but once again, we have to be mindful of what does that actually mean for the patient and how do you protect the patient in a situation where there's just a lot more of that data available. Right, right. Yeah, I love it. And I, you know, one analogy. So my CTO the other day was whiteboarding with us and he was explaining his analogy of, you know, it feels like the EMR data, you know, in the modern, you know, or, or analogy he was saying, it's like, think of those elements of media or photos, but the patient or the consumer is going to need to own the scrapbook or the diary of the story of what's been happening. So up to this point in time, there's been these systems that have been producing like scenes or snapshots of the story, but there hasn't been a contextual story to carry around and it's no one's business or no other company's business to be the owner of that story other than the consumer themselves. But there's all these, this, there's all this great media snapshots and scenes being put out by genomics, right? Wearables, the EMR records. And so is it really interest, interesting analogy that he whiteboarded when we had to agree on a whiteboarding session because it serves as the longitudinal architecture of, of stuff we work on. But, um, but it, it, but if I play back, I'm playing back or correct or a metaphor. I don't know if you agree with that metaphor or not. The way I look at it is like you and I were talking about children a little bit before the show, and it's like you know, for my mother, you know, I, I should I should create like a, a physical scrapbook of of my son and what's been going on lately, so she can own it and handle it, and have it right. And so um, even right. though it's the stuff on iPad, but uh, I don't know if you that's a metaphor that you, you no, know, it's one that we wrap our heads around a little bit. 
Um, but, uh, I, yeah. No, I, I, I kind of, I share that opinion. I mean, I, overall, the one thing that's lacking when all you look at with the patient's data is everything that's happening on the clinical side, you're missing right. the bigger picture, right? You're missing right. everything else that's going on in that patient's life. So how much of a patient's time is actually spent in a clinical setting? Um, right. it's, it's a tiny, tiny fraction. Right. Uh, and how much, you know, how much data can you generate from a patient or can you track um, of a patient outside of uh, a clinical setting? And, and the answer is it's just a massively their life. A significantly <laughs> larger number, right? Their entire life, basically, right? So it's like 99.99% of yeah. all the data that cap- can be captured is probably, you know, outside of the outside of a clinical setting. The, the question though remains: Is it meaningful? I mean, so sure you can clack, you can track all this data, but is it really meaningful? And and can it actually provide some useful insights as it relates to right. uh, painting a, a very holistic scrapbook of of, right. of a patient's life? Yeah, how do you get signal the right signal noise ratio to get it into a record that makes sense that could be predicted off and actioned against for the clinician and for the person? I think that's the the big thing. What's the what's the difference in the data set that makes the difference, right? Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. Uh, Ana, this is really interesting. So obviously, so love love to you know um, love to keep ge- geeking out on these topics with you. Um, I'm ke- so, but one question, I actually have one more question. Well, one, I want to be sensitive to time because I know we can go on for, for a while on these types of topics. But my, my last, before I ask my last question, um, what would be a great way for our listeners to get in touch with you or interact with you online on social media, et cetera, if you would like people to do so? Sure. Yeah. The best way to, to reach me is via email. So you can just um, email me my work account. It's first initial last name at Wanjong, which is A-A-Y-S-O-L-A at Wanjong, W-A-N-X-I-A-N-G.com. Awesome. Awesome. We'll definitely link to that in the show notes. And uh, Amit, my last question is more on, so you work, you see a lot in healthcare. Um, you work in a lot of different things. I'm kind of curious on what you're seeing in the market today and um, whether it's like new trends or habits that you're integrating into your own life. You know, obviously there's, there's, there's lots of new phenomenon. I know for myself, I'm, I'm about to get a new yoga mat, right? I've seen a new connected kettlebell, but, <laughs> but whether it's technology right. trends or, or interesting new tips and things that you're integrating into your life, what, what do you do on a personal uh, well-being perspective from a morning routine or weekly routine perspective that really keeps your engine going. Sure. Yeah. So a couple of things that I've I've just started trying out. I would say in the last uh, five or six months. Uh, number one, we you know my wife and I we we finally got a Peloton. That's because oh, nice. Nice. You know, <laughs> having talked to a lot of other people who have it, um, they swore by it, and so yeah, we you know. Through positive word of mouth, we decided mm. to spring for one ourselves, and yeah, we we absolutely love it. So I, I yeah, I'm I'm definitely pro Peloton, and uh, nice. you know, talk to me though in you know a year or two, and if I'm still using it, but so far <laughs> so good. Uh, as you know, these things sometimes you buy these pieces of equipment, and you end up not using them a couple of years down the road. But I, you know, I've I really I've enjoyed my my Peloton experience so far. So, um, and then the other thing I've I've just tried recently, uh, or just started work, uh, just started kind of incorporating into my just health regimen is just uh, in- intermittent fasting, and mm. so mm. Uh, you know, kind of trying to go trying to go yeah, a big chunk of the day without eating, so eating within an eight hour window. And I, I'll be honest, I'm 
uh, on many days I fail and I, I cheat a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. But overall, I've, it's definitely uh, helped out because I've been able to condense most of my eating within a, a set window. Um, nice. And the good, uh, I would say that one of the big positive um, outcomes uh, of, of me moving over to intermittent fasting is I'm drinking a lot more water now in the morning yeah. because I'm not eating my, I'm not eating my, uh, my first meal until around 11 a.m., uh, mm-hmm. which is something I, I never, yeah, I used to eat breakfast at eight um, or, you know, earlier. And so um, that's definitely one positive development there. So mm-hmm. yeah, as with all of these things, the Peloton and the fasting, I mean, let's see where I am in six months or a year. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think so far I've, I've, I think those are both positive uh, developments in my, <laughs> in, in my healthcare. So. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. I can relate. Yeah. I've been doing the intermittent fasting as well. I do ketosis from time to time and my, my water consumption has gone up. My energy has gone up. Focus has gone up and uh, my, my gut feels cleaner in my twenties for sure. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but yeah, yeah, I haven't tried the Peloton yet, but I uh, hear it's good. The Peloton, I guess it's like live classes and you get to tune into these live classes and it feels like you're working out with with a, with a group, if I'm understanding it correct, right? Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, you still need to make sure you line up though. So you start at the same time as a class, which I rarely do. I just uh, It just allows me to kind of track my, you know, my calories burned and my, my uh, output relative to what I did the previous week. So at least everything is being tracked and uh you know that that's definitely better than nothing just to be able to kind of journal your your progress that's fun it sounds fun I, i've got to get one <laughs> but uh uh amit um so first of all this was this has been great having you on the show i really appreciate you a few things i really appreciate you sharing your story with us really appreciate you focusing on uh, and sharing with your your passions in this space and kind of what you've been voting with with your dollars of course um, but also your vision of, uh, of health in the future and seeing where health IT is going and digital IT is going and how these pieces are forming. So I think it gives our listeners a better mental model. It gives us better inputs to kind of think about this world of health um, from a global perspective and how systems and processes are shaping up. So I know it, I'm very appreciative of it, Amit. And uh, I just want to say thank you for your time. And it was, it was really great having you on the show. Yeah, Anthony, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks.